welcome back to the crypt. I've got another creepy episode today as Jeremiah is back with me. And we've got a DC horror anthology comic we're going to discuss. It has names like Neil Adams and Jack Kirby attached to it. So you know it's going to be good. I'm going to play a little clip. Then JJG and I will begin our journey into the comic. Stay tuned. and creature from the Black Lagoon. The monsters with glow-in-the-dark features. Frankenstein is in a foul temper. Dracula flies in, fangs bared. Creature surfaces, dripping with rage. Phantom shows his fiendish face. I can't walk. Is he ugly? The monster battle rages on. It's a howl. The monsters with glow-in-the-dark features, each sold separately from Remco. Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Bronze Age of Horror Comics. And here we are. Uh, we're, we're pretty much right in the Halloween season here. So, you know, the, the horror is in full swing on this show, obviously. Uh, there's going to be many episodes coming out in October. And uh, Magazines and Monsters, uh, as well, is going to be featuring some really good content with horror comics and uh, also uh, some horror films. But uh, I'm diving into a DC uh, horror comic, uh, an anthology comic, with uh, you know my uh, regular host here uh, with me for those, uh, Jeremiah Jones Goldstein. How are you, my friend? I'm well, Billy. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, you and I both, uh, you know, kind of have an affinity for these uh, anthologies, and this is an interesting one. So it's not, you know, your run-of-the-mill book. It actually is. Uh, from the DC special series. Now that was, you know, a, a series of books where, you know, DC had, to my knowledge, it's mostly reprints, but they had, uh, you know, some uh, comics come out that were really, really cool in this series. And it dipped from all sorts of crazy things from, uh, you know, three musketeers and Robin hood to these horror stories to just your, your, you know, uh, vanilla kind of uh, superhero stories, uh, reprints of them from like the silver age. This, this series really kind of, uh, was I won't say all over the place because that almost has like a negative connotation to it. And I don't want to say that, but it, it, it really jumped around as far as, uh, you know, the, the genres and the content, did it not? Yeah, it did. It featured, I, to me, it almost feels like a book where they wanted to hit all the bases. I mean, there's a sports issue. There's <laughs> the there's a plastic man issue, which I assume is mostly police stories. Um, there's superhero stuff. I think they they wanted to like, well, to me it seems like they wanted to um, say, "Hey kids, these are all the kinds of comics you can get at DC. Check them out." Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so too. I think you know this Marvel at this point too was in full swing with the reprints. Uh, they were you know absolutely berserk starting late '60s and throughout the '70s until you know business got a little a little tough at the end of the '70s there, but. You know, they were going bananas with reprints at this point. So I'm sure DC was just like, hey, you know, we have a much bigger catalog than they do, you know, because they were the big hit on the block for a very, very long time. So hey, we're going to uh, fire off some reprints here as well. And, you know, they had their anthology books that had, you know, brand new content in them, which were fantastic in House of Mystery, House of Secrets, etc. But then, you know, they came out with these uh, these uh, anthology reprints as well. And this is a really cool one. This is a DC special number 11 from... Uh, April 1971 uh, cover date. And you just can look at this one. I saw this one, the cover of it a long time ago. And I was like, I got to get this issue. And for a long time, 
it just, I couldn't find one in my price range. Well, one came available, so I snatched it up right away. And it probably has a lot to do with having a spectacular Neil Adams cover. So what do you think of this cover? Yeah, when you and I were talking about books to discuss and you asked if I had this one, at the time I didn't. But when you showed me the picture, it's like, oh, that's a that's a sweet looking cover. I mean, you got a big monster on it, the big green monsters at the top beware the monsters are coming it's crossed out with here and spooky letters it is it is a fantastic cover and, and it it's neil adams but the i mean these gargoyles are awesome yeah oh man it's just uh i love it and i love how too it's interesting it's you know you have uh like three kids and they're checking out this uh, one humongous gargoyle and then there's a small one there as well and they have a flashlight and Man, Adams really did great here. Like, there's some cross-hatching in the background, but it looks incredible. And it does have some cobwebs on the bottom. Like, there's a lot of detail to this cover, uh, which is no, uh, you know, stranger to uh, Neil Adams' work. You know, he's very, you know, good penciler, a lot of detail in his stuff. And I do like to, one of the, uh, it's almost like a, a portrait uh, cover here. And on the uh, spine, on the left-hand side, you know, we get in this issue, and it tells you, the names of the stories that are in this issue. And that is something that just even adds to uh, the uh, the allure of this cover for me. It would have as a kid, and it is especially now, too. So you get the House of Gargoyles, Moon Monster, the Creatures from Nowhere. <laughs> we were prisoners on Beast Asteroid. It's probably the craziest name of all in this book. And then Return of the Barstow Beast, and then the Stone Sentinels, of giant island and really really cool i love when they they do this on these anthology books i know sometimes it takes away from the overall picture like you know adam's drawing was probably you know a little bit bigger and that took away from it a little bit but i still think it looks fantastic yeah it, there's a lot of copy there um but it, it 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 is it is fantastic it's all the background is all in black on that text and it's a different font on each one of them to me, this is almost the same as the uh, the old floating heads surrounding the main picture. <laughs> when he would have that, it's just a it's a cover style that I really I really like. And you're right, having the titles here, um, yeah, it's it's great copy. There's a great illustration. I mean, I don't. Have, there's nothing negative to say about. There's nothing negative. There is not anything negative to say about this cover. No, not at all. And, you know, you flip the page and go to the uh, flip the cover over, go to the first page. And, you know, DC's anthologies, they usually had uh, one of uh, a few artists. Usually it was somebody not uh, for the first interior story. They would have an artist like Bernie Wrightson or I'm trying to think of who else may have done some of them, even Alfredo Alcala here and there. And then they would also sometimes have Sergio Aragonis doing some, uh, you know, one pagers. And he actually does this first splash page here where we see Kane and it says a giant uh, word bubble here. And it says, Gadzooks, I'm surrounded. Once the word got out that this book is all about monsters, everybody wants to get in on the act. I'll say it again. This monster book is for kids. So bug off. And he's trying to hold the door shut. And there's all these monsters and stuff trying to get in through the door. It looks really cool. He has a fly swatter, too. They're trying to hit one of them. <laughs> what do you think of that? I'm a, I'm a gigantic uh, Sergio Aragones fan. Gru is one of my all-time favorite comics. Um, 
and when I found out that he did the work, a lot of the work in Plop, I went out and got those books. That's an amazing book. I didn't know he did these interiors like this, um, mm-hmm. other than the stuff in Plop. And when I open this book up, and I'm, you know, so I've got the great cover. I open it up, and the first page is Aragonis with this wonderful illustration of, you know, <laughs> he's holding back the gorilla and, you know, snakes and four-headed <laughs> monsters. And, you know, it, it's it's his classic work because there's tons of little details, you know, to see. Um, it, you know, it's even the room numbers, door 13. It, it's it's just wonderful. So I, yeah. I knew I was in for a treat. No matter how these stories turned out, I was going to predispose to like this book just from this splash page. Yeah, there's even like these little like ant type creatures marching yeah. underneath the door. <laughs> it's really cool. And then there's a, a window in the far right, you know, back. And there's a part of the, the house. Uh, I'm assuming the house of mystery there part of it. And then the moon. Yeah, he did a great, great job with this illustration. This is incredible stuff here. It's interesting yeah. because it's such a departure, you know, from the cover. You know, the cover being straight up horror and this being horror, but with a humorous angle. But it, it somehow works really well. It doesn't throw you off at all. Yeah, you know, in, when I in the issues of Plop that I read, um, where he does a lot of the work, and then there's you know there's other artists in there, the cartoonishness is handled really well in the stories, and it's the same here. This doesn't feel out of place in 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 the book. Um, mm-hmm. It could be that I'm I'm used to his art style, and maybe that's part of it. But, yeah, no, it, it's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some great stuff there. And like I said, a big de- like departure, something totally different from the cover, but I, I think it flows great together. And then, you know, you, you flip the page, and page one of our first story here, and the House of Gargoyles. And this is uh, originally from House of Mystery 175, just a couple years earlier than this. And uh, it's writer Jack Olick, and art is by Jack Sparling, letters Milt Snappen. And I really like this one quite a bit, and, it starts off incredible splash page here by Sparling of, uh, you know, Kane here uh, t- telling us, you know, dare to enter the house of mystery basically here. So what about this splash page here? Oh yeah. The, the house in the background, um, again, the copy on it is great. It's wonderful to have Kane sitting there front and center. He's got the little gargoyle he's talking about. Um, yeah, you no, know, excellent. Dark skies, um, the trees are, it, it's just spooky. Um, you know, the, wind, the windows have boards on them or the shutters are crooked. It's classic haunted house material for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, classic house of mystery here. Um, so, all right, well, I'm going to just do a quick little synopsis here from DC Fandom and then we'll jump right into the issue here. Or, or, I'm sorry, the story here. Uh, it says, uh, an artist flees gargoyles that he created after murdering another artist and stealing the plans for them. With his dying breath, the victim curses the gargoyles so they will come to life and avenge his death. Uh, it, pr- pretty accurate there. Uh, we can we unpack a little bit more than that from this one, though. So uh, uh, why don't we start off right away? Like we said, great splash page. And then we come right into, uh, you know, a, a page with, you know, I don't know, maybe seven or eight panels on it here. And we see a, a, a Frenchman and he's uh, going to like what looks to be like probably a boarding house. And he's going there and, you know, you can tell he's trying to run away from something because he just wants to go up into his room and be left alone. He doesn't even leave his room 
to, you know, eat. He has his food brought up to him. You know, I'm wondering, I, I hope this boarding house has private bathrooms. Otherwise, I'm not sure what he's doing in that department. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, it, 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 um, the boarding house feel, <clears throat> you, you've got to wonder what's up with this guy. What is he trying to get away from? You know, they <clears throat> for for these kinds of short stories, it's important to to build up that suspense, and this does that well. Yeah, and you figure you don't have that many pages. Usually, these are like six, eight pages at the most. So you really have to get in and get out. And you know, I think uh, Jack Olick does that really well here with this one because you know we had a little bit of a setup here, you know, by Kane, and right away, boom, you see this guy. He's running away from something. He wants to be locked in his room. And uh, the panel there at the bottom of page two, uh, bottom right-hand corner, I love that, where you just see a light on inside a room. You know, the shutters are closed. There's a you know a half moon or a crescent moon up there behind uh, the house. It, it looks fantastic. I love that little panel there. It's just, I don't know. I just, sometimes one panel even will jump out to me in a, a book, and that's the one that jumped out to me here. Yeah, it 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 does work well. You know, they've got the... The caption, you know, they're they're building to this thing that this guy's locking himself in a room. The only light you see is from behind shutters. You know what it made me think of? Do you remember the Dr. Seuss story, um, the Lorax? Oh yeah, yeah. And the 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 story starts off in the you know in the dark you know deadlands. There's this building where these kids are looking for the the whatever they're looking for, and somebody's talking to them from behind shutters telling them the story of the Lorax and everything. That's what this made me think of. It, it, and it has that, that same sort of creepiness to it. That like, well, what's behind, what's, what's going on behind those shutters? Yeah. Yeah. We, we don't know at this point, but honestly, the guy's just scared and hiding, but you know, you turn the page and uh, here we go. Here are gargoyles suddenly out of nowhere the next morning on top of this house where this guy's staying. So you know something is up here, and <laughs> I do think it's funny how the uh, townspeople, I don't know, gargoyles have never really bothered me all that much, no matter what kind they were or what they looked like, but these townspeople are, like, extremely offended by these and call them disgusting and ugly and all these things, and, you know, we see a guy and his wife uh, passing by uh, making all these comments about them, and uh, I'm assuming it's their uh, little kid here. Uh, I think his name might be Jimmy, and he thinks they're cool because he's a little kid, and little kids love, you know, strange weird you know sometimes morbid stuff <laughs> he makes a couple of comments about how he likes them and they're like get out of there don't be looking at those those are disgusting and uh, they don't like it so they're going to go to other people in the town here and start saying we need to get rid of these and they're disgusting and they're this and they're that and the little kid's just like these things are awesome like what's wrong with you people yeah i i thought it was a little over the top the way they describe how offended they are by these but you know they it, it they're cartoon characters, so they, you know, they're supposed to have over-the-top reactions to them. But yeah, mm -hmm. the, the the kid with his must hair and his buck teeth, they, he, he's a great little kid. Um, and of course, that kid likes monsters, you know. Mm -hmm. He's he's got a slingshot in his back pocket. It's, <laughs> it's it's that stereotypical little mischievous kid, and yeah, I mean, his parents are gonna hate it. He's gonna love it. So it. It works well for the story. Yeah, and it is interesting, too. Uh, the townspeople that don't like it, they start saying to some of the other people that are, like, maybe in some positions of power here, we need to get rid of these things. 
And when they're like, why, you know, who cares? And the guy's like, well, because they just showed up overnight. You know, there was no crew there. How did they get there? And, you know, he keeps the, the one guy keeps referring to them as haunts as if there's something, you know, evil and mystical and magical about them. And, you know, we got to do something about this. And, you know, some of the people are just like, dude, you're insane. Get out of here. And we do see as time goes on and it doesn't say how much time goes on. But it just says slowly the townspeople got used to the intruders, meaning, you know, the uh, crazy gargoyles here. But they just, you know, kind of mind their own business and don't care after that. But Jimmy still loves them, thinks they're cool and wants to find out what's going on and what they're all about. And he is totally bought in on his father and others saying that they're, you know, some kind of supernatural element to these. And I do like that. So, again, that goes back to kids, you know, uh, sometimes being a little more innocent and a little more open to things than adults He's totally bought in on there's something supernatural about these. I do enjoy that. Yeah, I do too. I mean, he's 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 got that sense of wonder about him that that you you know is is good for a child's imagination and everything. The only thing I thought it was a little clunky calling them haunts. Mm-hmm. Why not call them monsters or beasts or ghosts or you know haunts? Just seems like a Kind of generic. It doesn't seem like a noun, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's a yeah. verb to me. Um, so that seemed a little clunky as I was reading this. But yeah. other than that, it uh, I love this little kid. You know, he mm. you know, he, he he spends his days looking at these monsters and then he works up the courage to go to the house. Yeah, it's it works really well. Yeah, and here's something I found really bizarre. And I'm not I haven't read a ton of house of mystery i do have a few issues and i have two omnibus editions so i have read some and to my knowledge typically the only time you see uh typically now cain and abel with house of mystery and house of secrets is when they intro the story and then like maybe in the last panel doing like a you know ha ha and making like a little funny or a little joke about what happened in the story well Kane's in this story uh, for these couple of panels here when jimmy comes to the door the uh um, is it the house of mystery then, should we assume? Uh, he comes to the door and knocks on the door, and Kane answers the door, and he says to him, oh, go right up to that man's room uh, and ask him about these uh, gargoyles. Our new guest, you know, he's our new guest, and he might know about them. And he, he directs Jimmy to go up and knock on this guy's door. You know, I was going to ask you about that, because I, I've got to think you've read more House of Mystery than I have. Yeah, I don't well, recall him showing up as a character like this. Yeah, I got to tell you, I, I I was just, you know, by the time this recording comes out, I will have had another one come out, you know, and you and I uh, spoke about a house of secrets where Abel is in the story. And it was mm-hmm. kind of wild. It wasn't an anthology. It was, you know, a story that was just it, it took up the entire entirety of the book of House of Secrets. But that even blew me away. And I think you and I even mentioned it in that recording, too. It's like, man, that doesn't happen often, but. I guess some writers just, you know, they want to write it into the story, so they write it into the story. I found that to be wild. Yeah, and he's narrating this whole story mm-hmm. as it's happening, <laughs> not from the standpoint of a, um, you know, a third party introducing the story. He's actually narrating it. Mm-hmm. And it, it, so, yeah, that it surprised me when he showed up like this in these panels. Yeah, I mean, that's it, though, until the very end. You just see him telling Jimmy to go up and knock on this guy's door. And he knocks on this guy's door. And the guy just about craps his pants because the kid says to him, hey, man, there are some gargoyles out here. They're really cool. Do you know anything about it? And the guy flips out. 
And we soon see why, because we do a flashback and, you know, tying back into the first page where this guy showed up at, you know, the house and looking for asylum and trying to hide from something. We find out what he's hiding from. And at some point he was a sculptor and he was not great, but he was doing the best he could. And he had a nice girlfriend and she dumped him because he wasn't the greatest. And she started dating another sculptor who was a very good sculptor and had a lot of money and notoriety. Uh, so he got pissed off about that and basically went over to that guy's house and killed him and stole plans, as my synopsis said, to uh, sculpt some gargoyles. I think it's for a cathedral, they say, and he sculpts them. But as the guy was dying, the guy kind of like curses him and, you know, cursed him that the gargoyles are going to get him. So obviously when this little kid knocks on the door and says, hey, dude, there's some gargoyles on the roof, he pretty much craps his pants. Yeah, he loses it. I mean, the, <clears throat> he he's sweating. His the 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 second panel, you know, of the close up of his face, it, it, the shock. His eyes are practically popping out of his head. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's he has. I mean, he has lost his just crazy. Mm-hmm. And then and then this this detailed origin of what this curse and everything um it's mm-hmm. so cool because i mean it's 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 your typical kind of reason for a curse you know mm-hmm. betrayed love and you know kills the lover and etc cetera, etc cetera. but it's you know he builds these these massive creatures that that are now chasing them presumably all over the world mm-hmm yeah he does make mention about uh, they followed him across land across sea so yeah he's He's really uh, uh, frightened and trying to get away from these. And I did forget to mention when uh, he gets dumped by the uh, woman, he's in the midst of trying to uh, to do a sculpture of her. I think it's on page seven. Uh, and she dumps him and he's in front of the window crying. And then he goes over to her sculpture and uses a hammer to smash the head off of her sculpture. <laughs> yeah, he's, yeah, he's he gets just... pretty upset. <laughs> Yeah, that's really cool. I do like, too, how, you know, that one panel you mentioned about him kind of flipping out when there's any kind of real, like, raw emotion, whether it's, you know, him flipping out about getting dumped and uh, the the little boy knocking on the door and saying the gargoyles are on the roof when he's going to jump at the, I think it's on page uh, eight there, when he's going to, he jumps at uh, Francois to choke him and kill him and steal his plans for the gargoyles. They use, like, a green hue. Uh, all the time, you know, you, you see it again on page nine, you know, uh, where, you know, he's flipping out because, you know, the gargoyles come alive and it's all green there. I do like that. That's an interesting choice, but I do like it. Yeah, definitely. Mm, really cool stuff. So, yeah, then we see a little more of the origin. and He's, you know, on a he fled Paris and he's on a train and he says, you know, across a dozen lands and seas from city to city. He fled them, but always they followed. And uh, he's realizing he's like, I'm doomed. I thought I had gotten away from them, but I'm doomed. And I do like how, you know, the story switches and we see our buddy Jimmy and he's uh, outside with a couple of his friends. And he says uh, about the gargoyles, you know, they're alive. And the kids are like, get out of here. Like, you're nuts. And he's like, well, let's go up and find out. And the kid kind of looks at him like, "Uh oh, (laughs) like, yeah, he was fine sitting on the ground saying, "Ah, they don't exist. But as soon as Jimmy was like, let's crawl up on the roof and find out. And. The three kids go up there, and I love this because this is something crazy little kids would do uh, on like a dare and stuff like that, you know. So I do love this. This this kind of rings true to me about you know when kids are younger and 
you know, especially back in it, like, I don't know how many kids would do it these days, but you know, 30, 40 years ago, I think kids would, you know, do stuff like this, you know, no problem. Oh yeah. Yeah. Kids sneaking into haunted houses. I mean, not that this is a haunted house, but yeah, this is, this is excellent. Um, storytelling about kids. I mean, they, they, of course they would do this. He triple dog dared him, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the story yeah, they, is they, good. Yeah. The captions are good. The writing's good. The story's good. And the visual storytelling is great too. It really, you know, showing these kids going into this house and stuff too. Right. Yeah. Climbing up on the roof. These, you see them coming out of, you know, the, onto the, the flatter part of the roof at the front of the house. Yeah. Dynamite stuff. Yeah, and he calls down to the guy from the roof and says, hey, hey, dude. And the guy's like, hey, who's there? And he's like, it's me, Jimmy, again, mister. I came to tell you, the gargoyles left. Look for yourself. And, of course, he's like, they left? Oh, this is great, you know, ha, ha, ha. And he flips open the shutters. And then, again, there's a, a tense, emotional moment, and it's like I got a green hue to it, the panel, and you hear flap, 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 and the gargoyles have come to life. And there's our buddy. He's uh, hanging out of the window. And wow, how about that top panel left side on the page, you know, the final story page here where you see the gargoyle, the bigger one, carrying him off. That is a great one with the moon in the background. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And all I could think is, as this story wraps is like that little stinker. This is how he <laughs> proves they're alive. He gets this guy, you know. I mean, because he, he, he obviously yeah. has the feeling that <laughs> once they see this dude, these things are going to come to life. That's what he suspects. And mm-hmm. he, he totally nails this guy. I mean, yeah, the poor guy, man. It's like I know, he, I guess on one hand, the, I feel like, oh, this poor guy. And on another hand, I'm like, well, he did murder somebody just over like jealousy and envy. Yeah. So that's that's probably he's actually probably getting his comeuppance here. So, yeah, yeah. you know, it's kind of like a 50 50 feeling for me. Yeah, exactly. And then everything goes right back to normal in the town. There's no more gargoyles. People forget all about them. Right. I mean, the house. Mm-hmm. I do like in that as they're wrapping up, you see the the house without the gargoyles and that one window's open. You yes. know, that they that they took him out of that just it's it's a neat little detail that for what are we talking a fifty year old story here mm-hmm. it's just a cool little detail I I liked it yeah it's fantastic because the artist did a good job because the house is kind of not super detailed it's kind of in the background and you have some carriages up front you know I'm mm-hmm. assuming this is like you know turn of the century but <clears throat> it says in the caption box next morning the house was as in the beginning, as it is now, without gargoyles. The only sign of our late guest was the curtains of his room fluttering in the wind like broken wings, which is really cool. Again, I, I love, you know, purple prose, even if it's, you know, pointing out something the artist has already shown. I, I still like it. And you know, I know a lot of people got annoyed by that. Like, Why do you need to say that? You can just look at the artwork and see it. But I, I do like that. A, a good uh, writer, uh, even explaining something that's visually seen, I still enjoy that. So, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And there's Kane there to wrap it up. And he's like, I found a small gargoyle. Uh, and uh, the, he goes in the floor of that empty room. Nothing more. Perhaps uh, he made it to quiet his fears to break Francois's curse. Who knows? And then he has a little cage and he shoves it in a cage and he says how it's growing and getting bigger. So <laughs> really cool story there. So awesome story there. I love that one. And uh, 
you know, can't go wrong with that one. Really, really good stuff. And it, it's a typical Bronze Age anthology, you know, horror story from these books from DC. But uh, that's not a bad thing. Yeah, 100%. Two thumbs up on this story. Um, I like it because it's not it's not particularly gruesome or twisted. You know, you have some some kids that are, you know, kind of on an adventure. This guy who's been cursed by his, these gargoyles he's built. Um, it's it's a it's a good story. Excellent artwork. Excellent, excellent artwork. Uh-huh. Yeah, hundred percent good stuff. Yeah, you can't go wrong with that team. That was a really good team for DC, and I do like Jack Sparling's art, especially on stories like these where it's a period piece, older like that. His style just has a real old world look to it he's he was an excellent choice for that story yeah a lot of good detail um a lot of the coloring was very good like you pointed out all those green panels where there's um you know heightened emotion yeah i i really like this this is one of the better um stories i've read recently for sure mm-hmm. all right so let's move on here so this uh, next story is interesting now I will note that, you know, you and I talked about this quickly before we uh, started recording, that the rest of the stories in this book, they are fun stories, but they are uh, much older stories. They were from the late 50s or very early 1960s, and they do have that Silver Age feel to them where the first story was very much, you know, uh, felt like a Bronze Age story. And it's it's an interesting contrast. It doesn't throw me off of anything, but you do notice it's it's a very stark difference in the storytelling. Yeah, for sure. I'm I'm glad they didn't go all the way back to t- golden age reprints. Mm-hmm. Um and that they, you know, but yeah, you, you can, the 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 next four definitely feel diff- different from the first one. Yeah, absolutely. So, the next one up is The Moon Monster. And this is an eight-pager and yeah, good luck finding uh, credits on the scripter for this one, but the pencils and inks were uh, Bernard Bailey, and that's a uh, an artist that I do like. Uh, the more I see his work, I haven't seen a ton of it, but what I have seen, uh, I do really like. And this one was originally uh, in House of Mystery '97 from April 1960. So uh, this one's pretty straightforward. So I'm just going to rattle off a, a one sentence uh, job here from uh, Grand Comics Database. It says radiation from a meteorite transforms a man into a strange creature that affects gravity like the moon. And that's that that's pretty much what we're looking at here. But, you know, we'll we'll give this one its due for sure. I mean, uh, Kane introduces this one and the splash page here that starts this one out. Very, very cool. It says the moon monster and it's got, you know, Kane up there in the corner with his little monologue. And then it has it almost looks like a village, but it doesn't look like a village necessarily in the area where this story takes place. But uh, we have one, two, three guys, and there's like these tidal waves coming through a town, and there's this giant monster, you know, kind of like a humanoid, but the head looks like the moon, like literally <laughs> looks like the moon, just with a couple of eyes, nose and mouth. But it looks like the moon instead of a, a man's head. So what do you think of this? I like it. It's it, it's a very different looking monster. Um the moon, you know, the the moon head with that weird face, it it doesn't match the body, um, so it, it it's it's a little, I don't know. There's a, it's a, there's an odd juxtaposition between 
what's going on with the monster's head and what's going on with the rest of his body. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's a striking image. You have these big waves in the background and then this purple and green monster. Um, so, yeah, I'm in for the ride. Yeah, the monster, it, it, you know, now that I'm looking at it, it kind of makes me chuckle a little because isn't the Incredible Hulk, his skin is green and his shorts are purple? Yeah. Yep. Well, this monster is purple and his shorts are green. So I don't yeah. know. He's like, you know, a late cousin to the Hulk here or what. But yeah, the, bo- <laughs> the body on this monster is interesting. It's a, it's very humanoid, but the hands almost, you know, there's only like two or three, like a, a, a thumb. And then like the, the fingers are kind of like squished together. Like it, it's kind of a this very bizarre creature. And it's almost like, almost like scaly, like a, a sea creature or something. It's very, very difficult to, uh, explain what this uh, creature looks like here but again it is a typical silver age story because you know they portray it on this first page the moon monster like it's this crazy monster with a moon head that's come to destroy earth and that's not quite what is going on here there's there's definitely uh there's not really i wouldn't say there's really a you know monster or definitely not an evil uh monster in this story yeah for sure the what you're what you're presented with here um it, it really it just wets the whistle because it's it's not it's not what's going on you know it's not a monster being chased by villagers um the, the story is very different than what we're what our assumptions are from mm-hmm. from this picture that's for sure yeah it's basically just a guy uh he's in central america and he you know hunts you know after butterflies and we see him like uh, after uh, this, you know, very specific type of butterfly, and he's, you know, trying to catch it in his butterfly net, you know, not doing really any harm to anyone. But, you know, then we switch to an observatory, and there are three scientists there, and uh, they see that something has hit um, the moon. I don't know if it's a meteorite or something, and it then causes, uh, I don't know if this thing ricochets off the moon, or they say it kind of causes a piece of the moon then to be jettisoned, and it comes down to Earth. And it basically, you know, hits the earth within, you know, I don't know, maybe 10 or 15 feet of this guy who is, uh, you know, camping because it's now the evening, uh, the butterfly guy here. So it, it, it hits very near to him. And it almost looks like a monolith kind of sticking up out of the ground. But the next thing we see is this guy and he's transformed into this, you know, moon monster with this giant moon head. And, of course, he doesn't know really what's going on, but he knows something's not right and he's uh, been hurt. And he needs to get help, you know, like obviously some kind of medical help. And he <laughs> goes to the nearby village. And, of course, people are just like, what is this giant monster? You know, they kind of have the same reaction you and I would when we read this story. Like, wow, look at this crazy monster. But he's really just there looking for help, right? Yeah. he, Yeah. And it's one of the things that I the first thing I thought of as I was reading through this is like this. This story is what a eight-year-old would certainly Mm -hmm. enjoy right because there's nothing scientifically accurate about this i know it's a monster (laughs) story but even just things like a piece of the moon not burning up in our atmosphere or (laughs) let alone a piece of the moon flying off whatever it is so there's there's a you have got to suspend a lot of disbelief for this story but it that's it's a story of the it's age right i mean mm-hmm. 
so I I get it. But yeah, no, he's not a monster. He's 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 come to after he he's gone through this transformation, and he wants help. That's all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it is interesting because they have uh, they basically say you know he he shows up at this village and it's a fishing village and it's right by the the coastline here, so he is uh, his his head is basically, you know, the moon or a piece of the moon. So it kind of has the same effect with, you know, the tides. So it brings the tides in and starts flooding this village like crazy. And all these fishermen are like, you know, wow, that was crazy. What's going on here? And they're like, oh, it's probably that monster's fault. He probably did this. So, you know, the, the, the angry mob is is forming. They're, they're, they're looking for their torches and pitchforks here. And uh, the scientists from the observatory show up at the crash site and, you know, they see the the, the the piece of the meteorite or fragment of it or whatever and they're like uh oh what's going on it landed here and oh there could be some radiation because again we know you know late golden age silver age you know radiation was the the, the catch all for a lot of <laughs> stories and they see some footprints and they're like let's follow them and you know uh, the the one uh, d- uh, scientist a uh, lady here she uh, surmises that there was a guy camping here and he must have gotten hurt by this. So, you know, they're like, let's go, you know, try to help this guy. And the next thing you know, we go right back into it. And he's uh, with his giant moon head running through the woods here on uh, story page five. And I love how he's running through the woods. <clears throat> and I'm assuming it's his head that's kind of illuminating the woods because the forest here, because it's at night. And uh, he says, wild dogs howling at me just as they would howl at the moon. I feel weak, tired. I need help. And in the background, you do see. There's two dogs, and you barely see them back there, but you see the sound effect of in the background. <laughs> I do really love that panel. That made me chuckle. Yeah, the whole it, – it's all just very silly and goofy, but it, it it's fun. But, yeah, those two little silhouettes up on the hill, because his head is the moon, they're howling. I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. It, Again, makes absolutely no sense. They would just yeah. probably run away from him because they'd probably be scared of this guy. Yeah. <laughs> so then he shows up to another village, but this time, instead of a village full of what looked to be uh, f- fishermen, but like a bunch of white dudes, uh, he comes to a, like a, a native tribe here in Central America. And of course, they start kind of running like, ah, crap, what is this thing? Because they're scared too. But one of the head men says, hey, hold on. Uh, this is uh, uh, the moon god, and you know we have a legend about this guy and everything like that. And he goes on and uh, tells a little short story about a legend of one of their ancestors uh, fighting a cloud demon. And uh, I guess the the story goes that you know uh, one day the moon god, who was you know uh, opposed to the uh, cloud demon, is going to show up and he's going to save their village from some kind of catastrophe. And they're in the midst of one right now because there's a huge drought going on there. So uh, I did think that was kind of interesting. Uh, what'd you think? Yeah, I like this part of the story. I like that there's a this um, legend that you know is very much with the type of uh, mythology that we grew up reading about. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the guy flies to the moon with this prisoner demon or whatever it was. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, th- this part was th- this part worked really well for the story. Um, in, in terms of indigenous people having their own mythology, I thought that was pretty good. Yeah, for me, that was the best part of the story. Uh, I do like mythology, and even if this 
isn't you know any kind of legit mythology with people from Central America. That's fine. I don't know any better, and I don't need to know any better. I just know that that was cool, and it was the best part of the story for me. But you know, uh, the scientists uh, here actually show up too as he's you know laying in this uh, hut, and they think he's probably going to die because of the radiation levels. And you know, I kind of feel like, well, if he's if the radiation levels are that bad, you probably shouldn't be like two inches away from his face either you know that probably isn't a good idea <laughs> yeah like why did it the scientists get turned into moon people when they approached the the piece of the moon that you know fell to earth you know what i mean the fragment yeah 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 <laughs> it was only this guy that was so lucky apparently but yep he is laying in bed like acting as if he's you know a few minutes away from death and he sees that crazy butterfly again that he was trying to capture earlier before he got you know, transformed and he goes chasing after it, you know, into the night here and we see him and he's kind of a, you know, chasing after it. And then a lightning bolt comes down and hits this, you know, part of the mountain. And I guess right behind that was, you know, part of a, a river or stream or lake or something. And it kind of splits the mountain open and releases all this water down to, you know, the fields for the village and drought, you know, basically is over and, you know, their kind of prophecy came true here. So I, I did find that really interesting. And, you know, what happens at the very end here? This was kind of wild. I didn't expect this. Yeah, I didn't either. The, he comes back as himself. He's reverted. He's lost his moon head. Um, and, you know, he's wondering what's going on. Um, it, <clears throat> you know, as if to give credence to this, Mytho the mythology part of the story um yeah it's a it's it's a it's an oddball ending it, it's fine <laughs> um overall i the the part you know the, the like you said the best part of the story was the the native legend about the the moon demon and all that stuff that that's that's the best part of the story for sure yeah absolutely um, I don't know if I mentioned this, though, but this one was uh, from House of Mystery number 97 from April 1960. So that's where that uh, story okay. came from. Yeah. And I don't know if they were going for some kind of a larger uh, point they were trying to make with that story. If they were, it's totally lost on me. But again, I do like uh, Bernard Bailey's artwork. So, you know, that was all always cool throughout the entire story, even if there were points that were kind of a little bit slow or boring or something. Uh, I, I did enjoy his artwork throughout the whole thing. So that's that's something I'll give it a thumbs up for. Yeah, I, I, you're right. I, I would give it a thumbs up for the art. The story, I could give or take, uh, take it or leave it. Um, mm -hmm. But overall, the art, the artwork is is really quite good. It is a, there's an, uh, um, oh, what do I want to say here? A, uh, well, for, there's just a, a, a creepiness with the dark, dark colors, the purples, the greens mm -hmm. um, that works really well. Yeah. O overall, it it's a fine story, but the art quite good. Yeah, the art definitely carried that one. So, all right, well, let's move on to the next one. This is a six pager called The Creatures from Nowhere. And this is the first of two. Uh, featuring Jack Kirby artwork. And again, not sure who the scripter is. Good luck with finding credits for that. But uh, this is this is a wild story. This is probably the quirkiest, weirdest story in this whole book. I, I don't know. It, it's, it's, it's definitely up there in contention for the, the, the craziest one. But uh, this is uh, originally House of Mystery uh, number 70 from 1958. So we're even going back into the late 50s here. And uh, 
Yeah, this is a wild one. And uh, just a quick little uh, synopsis. It says, when strange creatures appear all over town, anthropologist Tom Conroy is called to try to understand where they came from. Uh, And (laughs) yeah, this is a really weird story. So you get this first page here and uh, we get a little uh, caption that says, Tom Conroy was risking his neck when he stopped army troops from firing on the strange beasts. But he also knew that keeping them alive was the only way he would ever be able to solve the riddle of the creatures from nowhere. And this one, you know, oh, I'm sorry, that's Kane telling us uh, there. He's a, a little uh, word bubble there. Um, this one definitely, you know, rings true for me of a Kirby idea as well as the artwork. So I don't know if he scripted it or not, but I, I definitely feel like this is one of his stories where he's trying to say, you know, uh, don't always, you know, jump to conclusions when there's something in front of you that you don't understand, you know, because we get this splash page that, you know, they were big on this in the Silver Age where they would have a splash page that would show you something that's going to happen three quarters of the way through the story. Um, why they did that, I, I'll never understand. To me, it doesn't make any sense. Why are you showing something that's going to happen 75% of the way through the story and then on the bottom of the page or you're going to flip the next page and it's going to start back at the beginning and then lead you back to that point anyway. It doesn't make sense to me, but I, I don't know. I guess uh, comic books had their reasoning for that, but that's what we have here. We have a, an army tank, and its, it's a turret is pointed at these bizarre-looking creatures from uh, other worlds, outer space somewhere, and there's a man running in front of them so they don't you know, get shot by the army. So, so the army won't shoot, basically. So what do you think of this? Yeah, it, it does have that, like you said, that panel that like this is going to happen later on. But these monsters are all really kind of neat looking to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not they're not your typical, you know, Godzilla and King Kong monsters. They're all over the place. They have multiple arms and legs and wings <laughs> and, you know, six appendages or it looks like a giant stick. Um, so, yeah, some cool looking monsters. And then, you know, you've got the guy running in front. It's almost sort of like a... Uh, uh, Bruce Banner kind of running in front of the blast kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it, it, this did enough to pull me in to say, OK, what what's going on with why aren't the monster? Why isn't the army blowing these guys up? Mm-hmm. Yeah, very, very uh, bizarre uh, <laughs> first page here. And I do like uh, now that I'm looking at it again, the bizarre little creature that's kind of uh, walking on the ground, but like two inches off the ground that's below the guy running in front of the uh, army tank. Do you see that little green guy there? Mm-hmm. That is a really bizarre looking <laughs> where Kirby came up with that one. The rest of yeah. them look like, you know, his typical, him and Ditko, their typical output of the this same era uh, that they were doing at Marvel as well in all their uh, crazy big monster stories, like where Groot came from originally and all that kind of stuff. It's It kind of reminds me of that stuff, which is cool. Those are, they usually always had very unique takes on outer space, you know, monsters and creatures like this. Yeah, definitely. Yes. Yeah, so, you definitely get that it's otherworldly, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I love how uh, uh, we see, you know, a couple of like housewives and stuff like that, seeing these bizarre creatures walking through uh, the suburbs. And uh, then two cops run into one of them as well. And the one says, look, Conroy, there's one. Did you ever see anything like that? Where in the world could it have come from? And Conroy says, beats me, chief. I've hunted in every jungle on Earth, but never saw anything like that before. And I'm thinking, wow, 
uh, must uh, pay big bucks to be a cop in whatever city this is because to have already uh, hunted in every jungle on earth would cost a pretty penny there, I would think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, Conroy, right away, we see the cop is just like, listen, we got to destroy these things. They're going to, you know, menace the city. They're going to kill people. We got to kill them first. And Conroy's like, whoa, dude, pump the brakes. Let's see what's going to happen here. Let's try to capture one of these creatures and study it and see what's going on, which is like, okay, that's that's a good idea. And they drop a cage around this one creature that almost looks like part like anteater and something else I can't even describe, porcupine or something. It, it looks yeah. very, very, very bizarre. And they drop this cage on it, and they're like, aha, we've got it. But they don't realize it can grow and puff itself up you know, almost like a puffer fish, and it grows to a much more enormous size and busts right out of their cage, no problem. Yep. And, it, you know, its tongue is sticking out. It, it's a <laughs> it's a very weird-looking monster, it, it, but it, it, it does exactly what you said, a puffer, like a puffer fish. Um, but I like that, I like the, the, the kind of story where you've got the one, quote, rational mind that doesn't want to just kill these things, you know, the, needs to figure out what's going on. Um, so mm-hmm. that works perfect for this kind of story. Yeah. It almost reminded me of, you know, a star Trek episode where it was, you know, there was sometimes a battle between, you know, either Kirk or Spock or somebody where, you know, there was some kind of threat and Hey, we got to stop this threat or something that was a perceived threat. And somebody would be like, hold on, let's try to figure this out here. Let's, let's not just go, you know, gangbusters here on this thing. But, uh, I do like how a, a pack of cops run into another one of these creatures. And when you first see it, it just looks like a big lumbering creature, and they're like uh, cowboy style here, going to lasso the creature. But the second they try to throw their lassos around it, it's you know has wings that were tucked into the back that you can see a tiny little bit of in that first panel. And then it just opens up with its uh, wings and flies away. And they're like, it's flying straight up. Why, it's half animal, half bird. And there goes that guy. That guy takes off. But aha, what do you think of this next one here? So I didn't really think much of this. When it first happened, but when I got to the end and, you know, the, the little bit of a swerve here at the end, which we'll get to, I, I didn't realize anything when this first happened. You know, we see this, uh, there's like four cops and they're kind of creeping up behind this other creature that looks like a, it almost has a beak like a bird, but like pinchers instead of hands, like a, almost like a crab or something. And then feet like a bird, but like a, almost like an insect body. It's, it's very bizarre. And they try to sneak up behind this uh, creature and it sees their reflection in the mirror of like a storefront, the glass of a storefront, and of course turns around, and it has this like crazy device to stop them. Like it, it didn't even dawn on me like that this wasn't just you know a, a reaction from a a lesser intelligent being. So what did you think of that? Yeah, I I, I same as you. There's some, what what happens later is really neat, but I didn't it didn't cross my mind here. To me, this is just another one of the monsters that is going to get away from the cops. <clears throat> yeah, and then we see, you know, the cops are trying to figure these this this out here, and you know, uh, the the monsters uh, just start rampaging through the city and destroying stuff and going berserk. And you know, finally, they're like, "We're, we're going to have to call in the military here." But I do like the scene on uh, I think it's uh, story page five where there's a bunch of people at a theater and they're watching a war movie. 
And then these, <laughs> these crazy creatures just bust right through the screen and people start panicking, going crazy. And some guy, yeah, out of my way. And <laughs> I love that. Yep. panel. That's favorite panel of this entire story. <laughs> yeah, that, 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 that's a good scene right there. Mm-hmm. And then the armored troops are almost here. And all of a sudden, Conroy's like, the ground is all burned here, chief. He's like, order the troops to hold their fire. And the chief says, have you gone mad? The order stands. You know, the chief, he doesn't want to listen to reason. He just, you know, he thinks there's imminent danger. So we, we got to stop it. We're, there's no waiting around here. And now here on the very last page is how we dovetail back to the very first page where, you know, we see the army. They're getting ready to blast these creatures. And uh, Conroy runs in front of them and stops them from shooting. And then we see there's like a silo, which it almost looks to me like, you know, a, a water silo. But I think at some uh some point they say something about a, a being a gas tank and we see the creatures kind of like getting into it like through a doorway and i'm like what's going on here in the very next panel you see it's it's kind of like a crazy spacecraft it, it's not a water tank or a gas tank or anything like that it's a, it's a crazy spaceship and that's what made the burn marks on the ground and why conroy was uh you know kind of wanting to investigate that and knew something was up yeah when he calls it a gas, i had i thought it was a water tower and mm-hmm. then, you know, why are the monsters getting in a water tower? It turns into a rocket. All very cool. Um, and then when Conway goes into his explanation, that actually made me love this story even more. The, the way it, it it ties back to what happened earlier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, this this actually made sense. He said, you know, remember when we tried to, you know, jump that one, you know, big monster, and he saw a reflection, and then he had that mirror kind of looking thing on the top of his head and like kind of zap the cops with it to stop them from stopping him. You know, Conroy kind of says, you know, obviously he had a bit more intelligence and had this device, whereas the other ones were just lumbering around kind of smashing stuff. So I kind of figured this guy might be, uh, you know, here to uh, help uh, round these creatures up. And, you know, he kind of says that they, you know, their ship probably crashed and they got loose and it was his job to go round them up, get them back on the ship and get them back out of here, which like you said, that was pretty cool. Yeah. It, to me, it was a real uh, encyclopedia Brown kind of moment where mm-hmm. all of a sudden you realize, he, you know, he's figured it out. He's the smartest man in the room kind of thing. But it, it was cool. Cause yeah, when an animal does see itself in the mirror, it thinks it's another animal. It doesn't, most animals don't have the concept of self, you mm-hmm. know, so that was a it was a neat little twist. And it, it 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 really pulls the whole story together. Yeah, this one did come together pretty good at the end. And, of course, Kirby artwork. So, yeah, yeah this one this one definitely was better than the previous uh, story for sure. It was it was a good notch ahead of that one. But here we go again. Another uh, one pager insert here with uh, Aragonis. What did you think of this one? This one's wild. I I loved this this uh, <laughs> splash page, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he's got the little this little cane. He's got a black cat next to him, but these demons. You know, you're obviously in in some kind of hell, with, mm-hmm. and these big red demons with little tiny wings and pitchforks. <laughs> and it this page, I I loved it, loved it. Mm, yeah, this is a really good one. You know, it's it's almost like he's opening a, a doorway to the basement, but instead of, you know, going into a basement, it, the doorway leads to hell. And there's, like I said, these demons, and then there's, like, these other, like, uh, Lovecraftian beasts down there, too, that are really mm-hmm. scary looking. One almost looks like, you know, an octopus or something. And I do love, as well, that 
we see some people that are, you know, on their way down to the bad place and they're <laughs> getting consumed mm-hmm. by flames and like getting chucked down into these, uh, these wells where the flames are coming from, which uh, I, I love that. It's, it's kind of a little morbid, but I like it, man. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, there's a monster under the stairs and yeah. it's a, there's a, it's a transition from like the doorway, you know, with the fuse box and the pipes or whatever the building is to mm-hmm. this, to this hell. And it's, classic stuff great picture yeah and it does say welcome to our monster convention and it says this is kane as you can see we're having a swell time attendance is by invitation only so as an invited paying guest you can join us down here or turn two pages to meet our next mad monster called the barstow beast he 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 which again it's like humorous but it's not really humorous when you look at it (laughs) the artwork exactly think about it but yeah that's fantastic and like he said, you flip two pages and we get a return of the Barstow Beast. And this is an interesting one here. I want, I'm really interested to hear your thoughts on this one. Uh, this one is uh, originally from House of Mystery 116 from 1961. And the artist here, I had never heard of this guy before. His name is Ruben and Morera, I guess you would pronounce it. Sorry if I'm butchering your name there, sir. Uh, I'm not the best with a name sometimes, but this is a really, really interesting story. And I'll just do the quick little, you know, one sentence uh, synopsis here from uh, the Grand Comics database. It says a film crew comes to a town to make a movie about a monster that terrorized the town years earlier. During filming, the star is turned into a monster. Now, that's kind of a bit of a, uh, uh, you know, uh, not what really happens in here. It's kind of a (laughs) they're kind of pulling the wool over your eyes with that a little bit. But I do think. You know, this one is obviously a, a an homage to, you know, the Frankenstein monster, but it, it's got a, a kind of a weird, crazy ending to it. But, I, yeah, I was just wondering what you thought of this one, because I do like uh, the visual on the uh, monster here on this very first page. The, to me, this felt like um, Hanna-Barbera, when they created Scooby-Doo, this is exactly <laughs> the kind of story that they were writing in Scooby-Doo in every episode. Mm-hmm. Um, the monster is this clunky Frankenstein lookalike type thing in, mm-hmm. I want to say, modern clothing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> you have these these uh, Hollywood handsome guys that are, you know, with their collars and their clean shaven, square jaws, hair slicked back. Um, I, I, I like the story. I like the little twist at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, this is like, this is, this is a Scooby-Doo story. <laughs> yeah, it really is. It's interesting because again, it shows you this, you know, page here that looks really cool. I like it, but you know, it's again, showing you something that's going to happen down the road, you know, kind of a, a flash forward and then flashback. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have two, you know, guys in the corner there, the, the movie guys. And the one says, you must destroy him before an innocent people perish. And the other guy says, but I can't, he's my friend, my best friend. And you know, Enter these uh, best friends here. Uh, you know, they're on uh, going to shoot a movie in this town. And the mayor's like, yeah, you know, it, it's going to be cool. It's going to be shown all over the world. Tourists will flock to our little, you know, village here because of you guys making this movie here. And, you know, uh, he says, uh, the mayor to this guy, who will portray the Beast of Barstow? And the guy says, yes, in fact, here he comes now, Lance Steele, who also happens to be my closest friend. And Lance, of course, is... Uh, in a polo shirt and has his pipe, you know, because yeah. <laughs> everybody was either having a cigarette or a pipe back in the day. And 
he kind of asks his buddy, you know, was there really a bar, a beast of Barstow? And the guy says, well, you know, there's always these rumors and, you know, fairy tales and every town kind of has their, you know, their own little uh, uh, tale about what happened here once and all that stuff. And he does base, basically reference the story of the Frankenstein monster and kind of the same thing, you know, lightning brought it to life and all this. And all of a sudden this uh, really weird guy walks in with a hat and he's got a jacket on with his collar up and he has some, uh, you know, papers with him. And he says you know, that he can tell them about uh, the beast of Barstow. And he has an authentic painting of the beast and I'll sell it to you for a thousand bucks. <laughs> and the guy's like, well, okay, but you know, let's have a look at it. And they pull this, uh, you know, it almost looks like a poster out and it looks really cool. And it's this crazy monster, like a, a Frankenstein monster type thing. And they do buy it from the guy. So that's kind of wild. <laughs> yeah. And it, you know, it, it's, it's funny. The, the thing that crossed my mind is, they decided to make a movie about this monster, but they didn't know what he looked like. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, it's kind of weird. Like, they're trying to think up their own design, but now yeah. that they, they have a picture of what it, you know, air quotes, really looked like. It, wow, this is so much better than what we could have thought of. And it's wild. They do uh, they do roll with it, and they do yep. make a, a costume for uh, Lance that looks exactly like the monster. And, you know, they're like, okay, let's begin production here. Cameras, action, and... The monster starts going berserk, and they say that the costume is insulated against uh, lightning, you know, electricity, because they're really going to zap the crap out of him with these lightning machines and lightning bolts, and they do. And I'm thinking, what if something went wrong here, or what if it's just more electricity than uh, the suit could take? You know, you would have fried this guy, and instead of frying him, though, it makes him go berserk, and he starts going crazy like the Frankenstein monster and smashing stuff and going wild. So that was pretty interesting. What did you think of this? Yeah. And it, it, you know, it's like, Oh, we're going to use all 10,000 volts of lightning shot into this guy. And it's like, Oh, who could have foreseen this problem? You know what I mean? Yeah. But yeah. It, very it, obvious. It, it, <laughs> it's, it's funny. Cause you know, the monster does go berserk. He starts destroying things and in the, 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 the real life story comes to life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, of course, everybody's like, I can't believe this happened. This is crazy because obviously it's a little wild and convenient that there was this supposed monster that looked exactly like this. Now this guy gets zapped and he goes berserk like this monster. So it's it's got a, a kind of crazy, but I do love page five. Favorite panel of the story. Top panel on a story page five there where, you know, it's, uh, you know, the, the beast of Barstow. You know, the guy's like running around the village here, like terrorizing people. And it, it's like two scenes of him, you know going through the streets here, terrorizing people. And then the, the kind of face in the background in this green hue, that looks really cool. That's my favorite panel. Yeah. That, it's a nice montage of the, the what's going on um, without taking up a whole page to do the, to tell this part of the story. Um, but yeah, great. You're right. Great panel. Mm -hmm. Really, really like that one. And, you know, of course they're just like, you know, how are we going to stop this guy? What are we going to do here? And, uh, you know, the, the, the producer guy's just like, I know I've sent for a noted scientist, you know, cause we need a scientist to come out here and help. And the mayor's like, yeah, screw the scientist. We're just going to arm all the citizens and, you know, shoot the crap out of this creature. And the guy's like, you can, it's like my best friend. You know, he just, something happened to him. He went a little nutty, like, you know, calm down. Like we can't just shoot this guy. And the mayor's like, yeah, we can. And we will. So too bad. Pal. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so of course he's like, I got to find them before they do. And He's like, oh, I, I'm going to go. He might be hiding out in that little cottage he rented before we turned before he turned into the beast. So he, you know, slips out of the town and goes to this little cottage. And there happens to be 
you know, a piece of paper on the floor, and it's a note that says, come to Varden Castle at once, matter of life and death. And it's signed Roger Varden, who is the guy that brought them the illustration of the Beast of Barstow, or, or, the, or is it the, the Barstow Beast, sorry, uh, in the yeah. beginning here. So he takes off, and he goes to the castle, and there's a, a cellar window open, and he creeps in. Lo and behold, there's his buddy Lance, and he's in, you know, like a, basically a, a cell in the dungeon of this crazy castle. And uh, one of my favorite lines from Golden and Silver Age uh, is uttered here. Great guns. <laughs> <laughs> At the bottom of page six, yeah. when he finds him. Great guns. There's Lance locked in a dungeon cell. So then I'm thinking to myself, OK, if it was if Lance is locked in there, then who was in the creature costume, you know, running around terrorizing people and going crazy? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like what's going what's going on here and then we find out it's it really was the creature. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so a crazy swerve in this one, right? Yeah, and it <clears throat> this while the story is quite fun, that really doesn't work because you know, how could the monster have been on the set? You know what mm-hmm. I mean? It, it's 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 a little too contrived, but sure, fine, why not? We'll go with it, right? I mean, that's what did you <laughs> say? The story was 58, right? Yeah, yeah, very, very late 1950s. So it's like, well, yeah. okay, I could suspend belief that yeah. somehow that Varden guy, you know, kidnapped Lance like overnight sometime and got his creature on the set there. And I don't know, like to me, at some point, you know, the producer, director, his buddy here would have been like, wow, that suit looks pretty cool, Lance. You know, does it feel okay? And what did the monster yeah. say? Ugh. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Was he already in character? But, you know, like you said, well, okay, we'll, we'll suspend belief here. But, yeah, the crazy uh, uh, Vardon guy tries to uh, sick the, the monster on him. Uh, and uh, all he has is one thing in his pocket, his trusty tape measure. So the creature gets defeated by a tape measure. So <laughs> maybe not the greatest... Uh, ending here with uh how the the monster was uh, defeated but again it, it's kind of funny and uh they do say that oh well i noticed that the bars to the cell were made of wood instead of metal so that's how he knew his metal tape measure would be able to stop the creature <laughs> okay yeah it, it right and if, you know a metal tape measure connected to electricity and then wood that's that's not going to do anything i mean it's <laughs> it's it's a bit preposterous for sure yeah and i do love how after he defeats the uh, uh monster he says to vardon now hand me that key to that cell like he's in charge now so vardon just is going to give up and it's like oh my creature's dead uh i you know he's not the the, the physical uh type that's gonna you know try to get out of there run away or beat the crap out of this guy to silence him because his friend is still locked up at this point. He's just like, yep, I'm, I'm done. I gave up. The, the, the jig is up. It's over. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's it for that one. So, yeah, kind of crazy, but, you know, interesting as well. I, I did enjoy it. It was kind of fun. And, again, this was a new artist for me. So I always like uh, uh, discovering new artists uh, in, in artwork and in comic books because, you know, it was pretty cool. It was a good story as far as the art goes. I enjoyed it, but. All right, we're going to move on to Prisoners on Beast Asteroid, and this one is absolutely gonzo. Uh, this is from House of Mystery 113, August 1961, and again, no clue as to uh, who the uh, scripter is. Uh, and again, though, it's uh, our buddy from the previous story, Ruben Morera, uh, with the pencils and inks here. 
And uh, yeah, this is a wild one. So uh, this one just says two space explorers on a distant asteroid are menaced by four creatures that emerge from mysterious capsules. And this one kind of mirrors the second story, the moon monster story, where not a lot of meat to this one. Some really, really cool visuals, starting with this uh, opening page here with Kane's introduction. What do you think of that page? Yeah, the one thing going for this story is definitely the monsters. You've got this big bird, you know, a la Rodan. There's mm-hmm. a, a, a dinosaur creature type, you know, half bird, half dinosaur, I guess, it, um, on the rocks. And you have the two adventurers trying to escape from it. Yeah, opening panel, dynamite stuff. Yeah, Mark and Vern are the uh, <laughs> two to yeah. <laughs> uh, astronaut type explorer guys that, you know, we see that they took a, a ship uh, to uh, a- another planet and, you know, they get out and they see these like spheres. And I think they might call them capsules, but they don't know what's going on. And of course they have their uh, laser pistols here, but you know, one of them, uh, something emerges from one of the capsules right away. And it's like almost like an octopus type creature. And it's got these, uh, Almost like these, like, uh, uh, like you know, octopus type appendages, but instead of suckers, it has like these spikes on it, and it does look pretty scary. I'd probably run too, but they don't even try to get a shot off on them. I'm thinking, you know, you know, maybe that would uh, be better than running away. But when you flip the page, they do finally just make a little space and blast away, and then the beast goes into like this water. So I don't know if they killed it or hurt it, or it was just like, ah, screw this, they can fight back. So I'm just going to go into this, you know, little. A uh, little pond right here and just go away. But then here comes Rodan. <laughs> and that's exactly yeah. what this creature looks like. Yeah, it, it's got big chicken feet, but it, it's <clears throat> um, it comes right, you know, right on the tails of them getting away from the octopus with the spikes. Um, they, you know, they have just enough time to duck before its talons fly overhead. Um, but again, you're right. They don't fire on it. it they've got their weapons drawn like. You know, they're good spacemen, but <clears throat> they they don't do much with them. <laughs> no. And then another capsule opens up and like a fire breathing dragon dinosaur type creature comes out again. Looks really super cool. But all they basically do is crap their pants and run away from it. <laughs> yeah. Basically, all these two guys do. They're they're not your typical, you know, macho guys here in certain points of this story. And they build a raft and they're going down river and basically just trying to get away from just trying to not get killed is basically this entire story with these guys. It's they just keep getting menaced by the different creatures and, you know, either using their wits or a, a bit of dumb luck is stopping them from getting killed by these creatures. And, uh, that's, that's basically what this story is for page after page after page. <laughs> yeah, it really is. I mean, they, they, all of a sudden they hear the spike tentacles again, while they're on this raft, they were able to put together. And then the dragon beast shows up again. It it is a little rinse and repeat, um, and these guys just go from you know one one hot hot seat to another. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then they finally run into uh, some aliens and their spacecraft, and one of them is playing a flute type uh, instrument, and almost like the Pied Piper. And uh, some of the uh, monsters are like, "Oh, uh, let's go, let's get back on this ship here." And then there's a guy that has like a I don't even know what you want to say, like almost like a, a ray gun type thing. And he points it at the Rodan creature and it has like a rope around it. And he ropes them. And the two guys are like, 
you know, hey, how's it going, guys? And the aliens are just looking at them like, you know, who are you? So they use their crazy rope gun on the two guys and rope them up. And then uh, it looks like they're just going to get back on their ship and go away. But then the crazy, you know, one dinosaur type bird monster, you know, comes after them. And, you know, one of the uh, aliens has like this uh, device. It almost looks like some sort of a phone. And he talks into it and says, ah, now I've pinpointed your language. A thousand pardons, friends, for the terrible mistake we nearly made. We weren't aware that you were thinking beings. And he says, in fact, we thought you were these other pet beasts of ours. And that asteroid had somehow transmuted you. And the two guys turn around and go, huh? And there are these ape-like creatures. <laughs> and the alien says, you see, we sent the beasts here to study their brief stay here. There was a fourth capsule containing these two pets. It must have landed farther away. And to think we might have gone back to our lab specimens for a study. Whew. We'll sure be glad to fix our ship and rejoin our party. And that was their introduction to Centauri. So I don't know if <laughs> if, if those uh, uh, ape-like men or, you know, the, the aliens are trying to say, you know, those are like, you know, uh, proto-Earthmen or what's going on here. This one was just like the most crazy gonzo story of the entire issue. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it, 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 make, it doesn't make a lot of sense even when they wrap up other than they were brought here to be studied by these dudes in red spaceships with green heads, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, Very bizarre. But, ex but excellent art, really good monsters. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's definitely a monster story, which is what we're in this comic for. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, I, again, yeah, great job by that artist. I just, again, I'm going to definitely look for his name to see if there's anything else I have that I just couldn't remember or haven't read yet and check it out because... Yeah, he's good stuff. He draws some yeah. really good monsters. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, then we have something interesting here. Now, I didn't read this, uh, but there's a one-pager here where it's a prose story with just one small little illustration, and there's uh, no uh, credit for the illustration at all. It's almost like a house of you know mystery or something, a house out in the, the woods somewhere with a tree, and it's got the huge moon behind it. It's a, a story called Moonstruck by Len Wein. So, again, I didn't read it. Uh, I always have trouble with prose stories when they jam them into a comic book. It kind of always throws me off a little bit because you're reading page after page of story and art, and then they want you to just go jump right into just a prose story. It's like, okay, I'll read that at some point, but I have not read it. I don't know if you did. I, I did read it. Um, I have a habit of reading text stories when they show up. Mm -hmm. um, it annoys me to no end in a Disney comic because, like, what kid wants to read a story? <laughs> When you're reading a comic, you know what I mean? Oh, that's crazy, yeah. <clears throat> but I did read it. It wasn't anything special. Um, rather unremarkable. Okay, yeah. So, yeah, you know, <clears throat> you like pro stories, give it a shot. If you don't like yeah. pro stories, then just keep on going to the next story, which is The Stone Sentinels of Giant Island. And this is uh, originally from the House of Mystery, 85 from 1959. And this is another Jack Kirby vehicle here. Uh, again, probably... Maybe not his script, but definitely, I'm sure, his idea and then his artwork for sure. Uh, mm -hmm. This one is about a, a scientific expedition that comes across an unknown island with stone statues resembling those on Easter Island. After one of the statues comes to life, Professor Spears deciphers a tablet and discovers that the statues are sentries for an ancient alien base under the island. Luckily, the tablet also tells the scientists how to deactivate the sentries and they are able to escape before the island submerges. So, yeah, this one's uh, interesting. 
uh, again, kind of like it said, you know, the, these stone men, these giant stone men that look like the heads that are on Easter Island and very Kirby, you know, that you can see these stone men and they scream Jack Kirby as do uh, the characters in here as well. So uh, what were your thoughts on this one? I like the story. Um, it's it's not the best of the book, but I liked it. The, the stone monsters, um, 100% Kirby. Um, I like the the disproportionate um, design on them. They've got the humongous head, um, smaller body features, but big hands. Um, they look like, <clears throat> do you remember the old, old toy uh, army ants? They were uh, uh, orange, about two inches tall, plastic. They had like military garb on them and stuff like that. Well, that sounds familiar. I can't think of it and visualize it, but that does sound very familiar. To me, that when I, when I see that when I saw the stone monster on the uh, the splash panel, um, that's what I first thought of. But I, I like the way that they look. You know, they're not a hundred percent ripoffs of what's on Easter Island, but mm-hmm. obviously that is what inspired them. Um, yeah, and I, I like the way that the the story progresses. You've got your team of adventurers with the old scientist man and the the sea captain and then the strong sailors and everything getting Mm -hmm. chased by this thing um yeah i i I dug it yeah it's cool it's like i said you you get sometimes with these kirby stories you know sometimes you get something that tries to have like a bit of a morality play in it some of them just seem like just you know straight up adventure stories with monsters thrown in there but to me they always had a good flow to them where they weren't uneven. They're usually very even. And again, sometimes that doesn't mean there's a lot of highs. It also means there usually isn't a lot of lows either. So they're usually very consistent stories. Just every once in a while, he would you know, throw in, like, like I said, like a morality play or something or like a twist ending. But you know, for the most part, his giant monster stories, they're drawn very well. And the story that you know, he probably came up with, because we know Kirby you know, plotted a lot of things he never got credit for, even when he wasn't scripting. He was still, you know, plotting a lot of things and, you know, putting a lot of notes in there for whoever the scripter was to, you know, kind of give them an idea of what he was thinking. So, you know, I don't find it hard to believe at all that a lot of these ideas in these even monster stories were were coming from his mind as well. Yeah, and the way you described it is is perfect. It is an even story. It's not, it's not like the Moon Man story in the beginning that's like preposterous to interesting back to preposterous. It's it's just a good adventure story um the one thing i did find funny is when these monsters are chasing these guys there's one of them picks up a whale and they <laughs> i'm looking say at that right now <laughs> it's a great blue whale but kirby obviously drew a sperm whale mm-hmm. now maybe you know in eighth grade they didn't have a biology class and they're not studying whales but that's a sperm whale. It is not a blue whale. <laughs> yeah, that's that was I was just going to mention that because I'm looking at that right now. And that is my favorite panel of the whole book, because, yeah, one of these creatures picks up this whale and chucks it out into the ocean pretty far, too. And, of course, one of the uh, sailors, uh, again, we get one of my favorite, you know, old uh, exclamations. Great guns. Look at that. <laughs> I love that. It's one of my favorites. It's like something right out of the you know Batman 66 show. I, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, like he said, it's a fun story, you know, and then I do like how he renders this, uh, you know, uh, 
professor guy as well uh, with the gray beard and mustache and gray hair. He looks fantastic. He's yeah, he's a typical kind of, you know, Kirby middle old aged guy. But I really like how he draws that, you know, that specific kind of person. That's one of my favorite, you know, Kirby drawings. Oh, yeah, definitely. He's you know, he's got that quote Moses look to him. You know, mm-hmm. the, 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 he's the, the prophet or whatever, but you know, he's just a rugged looking dude. Um, he's spry. So he's, he's, you know, he's obviously old, but he could still keep up with these sailors. Um, yeah. Classic, classic, uh, uh, wizened old man adventurer for, for Kirby. Yeah. And then, like I said, in the synopsis, they, they kind of, you know, in the trying to evade these giant stone men, the monsters, uh, they find this like underwater city, you know, uh, underground city, almost, I should say. And, you know, it almost is like uh, futuristic looking and they, you know, get inside the place and they, they find, uh, you know, like a lever and they kind of like, uh, you know, activate it. And this is what, uh, you know, makes these giant stone men kind of stop chasing them and try to kill them. And then you see all this smoke and then they kind of figure out like, oh, crap, this is like going to be like Atlantis. This island is going to sink down into the ocean. So it's like, you know, feats don't fail me now. They run and get back on the ship and, you know, get the heck out of there. And in the end, you see the, the ship sailing off into the distance and you see just the, the tips of the heads of these stone men still uh, sticking out of the uh, the water. Yeah. And, they, you know, it's it's a good ending. It's, mm-hmm. the, it, you know, it feels a bit like. um uh, what's the one the 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 Harry Hughes movie with the Nautilus and everything where the islands is it uh, mysterious oh, island? Uh, yeah, you know it. Yeah, I know it's a giant mean. squid, and they're gonna they're gonna yep. escape as the volcanoes blowing up and everything. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's very similar. The islands sinking, and they get out in the nick of time. Mm-hmm. But you know, you get a little bit of Kirby tech in there. Yeah, um, yeah. It, very very cool story. Um, neat to see some. You know, classic Kirby. You can just picture him at his his drawing board. You know, whipping this out over a weekend kind of thing. You know, oh, absolutely. This was something I'm sure he had fun doing, and knowing his work rate, like you said, it's probably was like, yeah, I think I'll do one of these this weekend. And you know, Saturday, Sunday, boom, it was done, and it was on somebody's desk Monday morning because that's yeah. what kind of a workhorse he was. But. Uh, I will be re- I would be remiss if I don't mention the very last uh, page in the book here. We get another Aragonis uh, <laughs> picture, and this one is incredible. It's crazy. And uh, we get Kane again here, and he's got the black cat on his shoulder and a gargoyle there. And he says, that's it, kitties. It's all over. The house was getting too crowded, so I just had to get rid of them. How did I do it? You ask? Easy. I called an exterminator. Would you believe I found him in the yellow pages? And <laughs> there's the house of mystery. And you have, I would say, literally a thousand or more creatures, monsters, insects uh, getting out of the house of mystery here, like breaking out of it. Some of them in the sky flying away. Some of them are running around on the ground here. It almost looks like there's a bear running off of the porch. Like, this is a great image. What do you think of this? Oh, yeah. It, out of this world. You've got like a, in the, a meatball with 10 legs running. I mean, it, <laughs> All just kinds of weirdo stuff, wings and bats and dragons and <clears throat> frog things. It, I, I love it. And I love the fact that, you know, there's a gargoyle that's reminiscent uh, of the cover and the first mm-hmm. story, tie, tying yeah. it all together. <laughs> uh, 
It looks kind of sad. <laughs> yeah, it looks kind of sad, like where are all my buddies going. But, you know, Kane's looking a little little disheveled. He's got a pot belly and his coat's you know, worn. Um, but, yeah, fantastic cap to this, this comic. Yeah, this was a great way to end this book. I, I really loved his contributions here. To me, they were just as big a part of this book as all the stories put together. And they were only you yeah. know, th- three pages, basically. Yeah, it, it, it ties everything together nicely, you know, the transition between the stories um, and then, you know, the book ends to the opening and the closing. Dynamite, dynamite. Mm-hmm. Yeah, got to love it. So, all right. Well, was there anything else uh, you wanted to mention there before we wrap up? Uh, no, I, I I enjoyed this book a lot. Um, the, the Moon Monster story. Not not my favorite, and the Beast of Barstow, it, w- it was okay. The rest of the stuff was all very good. That opening story was worth it for the price of admission um, alone. Um, and then the the Aragonis uh, panels were, you know, the cherry on top of the Sunday. Yeah, even if you're not real high on the, you know, uh, late uh, early uh, Silver Age stories, like you said, the House of Gargoyles with uh jack olick and jack sparling was fantastic and the cover by neil adams again out of this world and then like you said you just throw in that uh the stuff by uh sergio aragonis oh incredible that just was it was just the right amount of you know horror based on a little bit of humor as well thrown in here to you know make this book you know if you can find this book for a few bucks definitely get it just like you said the cover is worth the price of admission alone and then that first story and the aragona stuff is is puts it over the top that you know easily for me it's worth a few bucks yeah and it's nice to get some of that that kirby stuff that (laughs) you know unless you buy one of these collections i don't know maybe from the jack kirby museum or whatever that has everything he did in it you don't you don't see these these little stories, so that's mm-hmm. you know it's just nice nice to see that stuff. Um, so yeah, definitely. And I mean, this book was a quarter way back when I got my copy. Uh, I think I paid five for this one, and uh, I, I'm really pleased with it. Oh yeah, that's a great deal. If you can get this for five bucks, that's a great deal because you know again it's got you know how many stories in it and the incredible cover. And the, like we said, the Aragona stuff is just, it's fantastic. It's a great book. And yeah, the Kirby stuff too. I don't know that DC has ever put out any kind of a collection with this stuff from him. I know Marvel has, because I have one of them. They put out a couple of omnibus editions. I can't remember what the heck they're called. And I'm looking at my shelf here right now and I can't find the stupid thing. But they came out with some omnibus editions. I think there was two volumes of them where it was just all of that Silver Age monster stuff that Kirby and Ditko mostly did. I think those are pretty much mm-hmm. the only two guys, but they, they have two volumes of that out, but you do not see that from DC. I don't, I don't know that that stuff's ever been reprinted. Yeah. And I mean, I know these kinds of things show up in stuff like, uh, there was that black magic, uh, reprint series, mm-hmm. but I think that was only, it was only what 11 or 12 of those. There weren't many of those. no, <laughs> But yeah, even no. those are old at this point. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So it, 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 it is nice to come across it in something like this. Um, 
but yeah, I'm really glad you suggested this book. I'm glad I found it at Terrificon. Um, it was it was a lot of fun. Something this is something I would go back to and reread. Um, I liked it so much. Yeah, absolutely. This def- oh yeah, this one's definitely worth you know pulling out of the boxes and uh, checking out every once in a while. So all right, well, uh, thank you for joining me, my friend. Uh, you and I, I think we're gonna try to belt out a few of these uh, anthology uh, stories here. Uh, for the uh, Halloween season, and uh, you know, this is this is the time of year to really, for me, to accelerate with this kind of stuff because I love talking about it all year round. But I always get even in a better mood for horror stuff and these anthologies uh, around this time of year. So, uh, looking forward to talking about some more of these. Excellent, me too. I'm gl- glad you had me back on. Um, this was a fun book, and I'm looking forward to whatever we're talking about next. Yep. All right, man. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. And if anybody's looking for you, I know they can find you on Twitter um, and they can also find you at your blog. And I will have all that stuff in the show notes as well. And uh, yep, good times. And uh, I'm going to step out real quick here and take a quick break, but be back in a minute to wrap things up. Look at that gargoyle. It moved. The gargoyle moved? Yeah, he shoot away a bird. Oh, Johnny. When you see submarine periscopes where they couldn't be any, and then see stone gargles move when you know they can't, I think you'd better have your eyes examined, or your whole head. We have a proverb in my country, Haji. Seeing's believing. We have one in mine, too. I'm from Missouri. All right, all you creatures of the night. That'll wrap up this episode. I want to thank Jeremiah for joining me once again. He and I are having a blast with these books. We also have something cool happening for Halloween, so keep an eye out for that special episode. Well, that's it for now. But tune in again soon for another episode of the Bronze Age of Horror Comics. Mm-hmm.